Hello and welcome back to Love at First Screening, the show where I, rom-com enthusiast Madison, introduce my friend, co-host, and resident genre skeptic Chelsea, that's me, to all the feel-good, cliche, romantic, questionable, hilarious, occasionally humorous, films she's never wanted to watch. This week we are watching Sweet Home Alabama. This movie features Southern sweetheart Reese Witherspoon and Josh Lucas as the main pairing with Brief Interruptions by Patrick Dempsey. It was directed by Andy Tennant, also known for Chelsea's favorite Cinderella retelling, Ever After. Also movies like Hitch and Fool's Gold. The film, while set in Alabama, was actually filmed mostly in Sonoy, Georgia, primarily uh, New York as well, Florida, and the Georgia coast. So I was watching this and I was like, I've seen that. That is not Alabama. I've been there. And sure enough, it was Sonoy, which is also where they filmed The Walking Dead. So just imagine this movie overlaid with that show. Uh, and it features small town southern girl Melanie Smooter, who transforms herself into New York socialite M Melanie Carmichael, emerging as the new hot designer on the fashion scene. Her senator boyfriend, Patrick Dempsey, shocks her with his proposal, which quickly sweeps the tabloids after his shocked New York mayor mother reveals the sudden engagement. Engagement exposed, she rushes home to her small town of Pigeon Creek, near a fictional version of Greenville, Alabama, to attempt to finalize the divorce from her first husband after being apart for seven years. She must grapple with the shame from her small town life, her big city ambitions, and an unruly ex-husband hell-bent on refusing to sign the papers. Ultimately, he signs them, she plans the wedding to the senator, and she walks down the aisle, only for her divorce attorney to stop her to show her that she herself had failed to sign the papers and was thus still married to her ex-husband. She runs back to her first husband, realizing the love never died, and then they get struck by lightning on a beach in a beautiful parallel to the start of the movie where they share their first kiss as children and die. Just kidding. That was the alternate ending. They stay married, live happily ever after, he with his glass company and her with her fashion career. So, Chelsea, I now have the luxury of guessing if you liked this movie, and I know for a fact that there are elements of this movie that you did not like and you found very problematic, but I don't think you hated it. Madison, I watched this movie four days ago, and I, I like to watch these movies with some time in between because I, I like to let it marinate, you know, what, what I'm going to say, my thoughts, my feelings. I like to let the flavors become robust if you will this was like marinating a rock <laughs> and i say that because this movie was so boring <laughs> and i feel like this is going to be the first episode where my criticisms of it are mostly my own personal taste i have some legitimate criticisms but I was watching this movie and I can't even tell you how many times I paused to see how much longer I was going to have to be watching it. <laughs> I love that. You know, so Madison and I, despite living in different states and hundreds of miles away, see an alarming amount of each other even before this podcast. Like I see her more than people I actually live close to, I feel like. And last night, we we have a film discussion group with a professor from the college we went to with some other friends. And one of the friends was so shocked that I had never seen this movie. 
And I was like, did you not get the memo about what the podcast is about? The whole point is that I haven't seen most of these movies. But after that, it was so clear to me that this was a well-loved movie. And I was like, oh, my inklings are all right. I will be in the minority of people that don't like Sweet Home Alabama. And for the exact reason that we started this whole damn podcast. <laughs> so we're really getting to the heart of it all in this one. And I want it noted that this movie is an hour and 48 minutes long. That's not true. This movie was like three hours. This was an Avengers long movie. It has to be. Are you kidding me? An hour and 48 minutes? That's it? Yeah, yeah, just an hour and 48. This is like my sister and I have a running uh, argument about how long the movie Mary Poppins is because apparently it's not that long, but I feel like it's three hours long. Are you serious? Only an hour and 48 minutes? Confirmed by IMDb. This movie felt so, so much longer. (laughs) I was so bored. The best way I can describe this film, and this is, so in lieu of my alternate description, I'm going to describe for you the plot to every Hallmark movie, and it will be this movie. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. A girl from a small town leaves the only home she's ever known to find success in a big city, in a highly competitive industry. And after years of hard work and gumption, she achieves success only for some reason to have to come crawling back to her hometown. And it is there that no one gives a flying fuck about what she's been up to in the big city because they've got their town meetings. They've got their little dive bar. They've got whatever the hell is going on in their town. They are more invested in the people that have lived there always. And after whatever hullabaloo is going on in the town that has brought her back, she learns a very valuable lesson, or at least you're supposed to think it's valuable. And that is that... Hometowns are important and the people that you grew up with have something of value to share with you and you don't have to run away to bigger places in order to find yourself um, because this is this is where your roots are. And then also there's, you know, generally a man or two involved. Is that not the plot to every Hallmark movie? It is. Yeah, because... Small town girl engaged to big city guy leaves to go back home and falls in love with Lumberjack. That about fits the dynamic there. Although you ha- you can't tell me that the piece of dialogue where he said, I think it was you can have roots and wings at the same time or some shit like that. That was actually a pretty, a pretty decent piece of dialogue there. Very cheesy, but... Look, my theory with this movie, and look, I know I'm shitting on Hallmark movies for being entirely derivative of each other. Hallmark movies aren't for me. I acknowledge that. But I also acknowledge that they have a real audience. People enjoy them. And I am all for things that bring people joy, so long as those things do not actively harm anyone. And as long as you're not forcing me to watch a Hallmark movie, you're not doing me any harm. So I say have at it. But this is literally like... If Hallmark took its entire budget for the Christmas season and decided to make one film, except that they didn't invest any of that budget into some of the things that would have improved upon the story, they just did the same thing they've always done, and maybe people got paid more, which I'm all for people getting paid more, so like, good on them, but also the movie is, it's not any better than anything else 
that they've produced before. None of these characters were compelling. The story was not (laughs) compelling. I was thinking about how to articulate this because, again, I don't have a lot of, like, gripes about the content in terms of the problematic elements of it. There are problematic elements, and we'll get to that, but overwhelmingly it's that this story was boring for me and I think the best way to say that is I wasn't engaged and so as much as I detest you've got mail as much as I can't believe never been kissed was ever made (laughs) I was engaged in so far as I was invested in the horror that was happening in front of me and I wanted to figure out how to make it stop This movie, I just wanted to turn it off and do literally anything else. And like, I will not watch either of those movies ever again. I won't watch this movie ever again, but it's for two completely different reasons. And so I think that a movie, for it to be engaging, it can be engaging in either a negative or a positive way. And this movie just was neither. It was not engaging in any way, shape or form. I actually really do like this movie. Um I'm so glad that we're finally disagreeing. I feel like you agree with me all the time. I know. And I don't know whether you're just being polite because we both don't like confrontation, (laughs) but I'm also worried of disappointing anybody listening by ever agreeing with you when I don't actually. (laughs) (laughs) Let me, um, I'll, I'll stand up for this movie. So we'll, we'll analyze, you know, the rom-comitude of this later in the episode, but I think that this movie really does encapsulate quintessential rom-com in a lot of ways. What I really liked about this movie is, as someone born and raised in Georgia, there were so many moments that just felt a little extra special to me watching through it, like the way that she acts with her mother. Thankfully, my mom's not that type of Southern mom. My mom's the type of uh, Southern mom who, like, you walk in the door and she's like, I'll feed you. But she's also, like, a very um, modern Southern mom where she's like, you're a vegetarian? I'll feed you. You're gluten-free? I'll feed you. Like, it doesn't matter what your dietary restrictions are. She's made something for you. And she will not leave until she feels like you are satisfied in your hunger and also have, like, three to-go tins. And don't worry if you're still hungry. She has some stuff in the freezer she'll send you home with. No, this is more like my... And I can say this because I know she's never going to listen to this. This is more of like my grandmother and my mom's interactions where it's just really passive aggressive. It's the thing of never actually having a confrontation because I don't think she and her mom ever had like a genuine confrontation. It was all so passive. And that's exactly how my mom and my grandmother or my grandmother interacts with my mom and my mom is just like, please stop. And then just the small town vibes of everybody knowing everybody. I come from a really big Southern family. So that's sort of how we all interact with each other. Like Bobby Ray. Bobby Ray reminds me of, well, my cousin Jake before he joined the Air Force and went all Air Force. But he kind of reminds me of my cousin John, you know, that super friendly southern guy who's gonna joke around with you that sort of thing I don't know there were elements to it that felt so much like home that I think that's why I like it is you know the plot notwithstanding it's just the instant familiarity for me that I really like about this movie now obviously you know the confederate flags the reenactment of the battles and everything parts of my southern heritage that I rebuke 
strongly. Yeah, there was, there was the, did you see the Confederate flag, like, throw pillow on the couch? That was cringe. That was uncomfy. But I, I was talking about it with my sister, and she just goes, fuck, that's Alabama, and at least no one was marrying their cousin, and I was like, ooh, good burn. Those notwithstanding, just that sort of small town vibe, I love that in a rom-com. I'm the type who loves the idea of the big city girl uh, falling in love with the small town lumberjack gingerbread factory owner baker flannel wearing dude. Just because I think it's wholesome and I love that it's what my friend Lily would call a popcorn movie. It's a movie that you're going to watch when you feel like everything is going to shit and you don't want to feel like shit. So you watch something where everything is going to resolve itself as soon as it comes up. And that's what I love about rom-coms. And I think that did this. Look, there's nothing wrong with wanting escape in your media. We all do. I think for some of us, it's not (laughs) rom-coms. But I think that there is a world in which a movie has all of these tired tropes, but has something that even if you're subjected to it for the 85th time, there's something special about that film that makes you glad that you watched it. And I don't know that this film had that for me. I've heard writers talk about the elements of story that are most important to them. And it's not just writers, readers too. There are there are people that value plot. Like that's the most important thing to them. There are people that value writing. There are people that value world building. There are people that value characters. I think I fall more in the realm of character is probably my number one. As someone who enjoys Casey McQuiston, Madison. I love them. I think you can agree. One of my favorite book series. It's very character driven. Um, If you try to tell someone what that book series is about, you're going to flounder because there is a plot, but it's not the most important thing that's happening in that in that story. And so I think what my point is here, and again, I acknowledge that my dislike of this movie is more personal than anything else. I didn't like any of these characters. There was nothing about them that made me want to root for them or root against them. I genuinely just, I didn't give a fuck. So that's really because all of these characters could be subbed out for pieces of white bread and it would have the same effect. And I will say that in terms of pacing and everything, I felt like probably why it dragged on for you is because they're just sort of being pushed through the plot. There's not really any development. Um, I guess you could say that the development is that Reese Witherspoon gets her accent back and realizes that the town that she hated and was so desperately trying to escape from, you know, still holds so much of her history and her past. Like, it holds a big part of her. Because it goes into the whole thing of, I don't even recognize that girl anymore, you know, trope. And I say trope, but I feel like we can all relate to that in degree. Like, I think if I met the version of myself that I was... 
I don't know, let's say at like 18, I'd probably punch that bitch in the nose because she's so fucking melodramatic and she's such a know-it-all bitch. And I just want to grab her and shake her and say, bitch, you know nothing. Can we talk about the bar scene? Which one? I'm guessing the scene where you would have the most issue. It's that scene. Of course, it's that scene where she's going to interrupt her not so ex-husband's date. I know. I literally, here's the thing. You guys know I suck at names. I will never remember his name. I don't know it. Never heard of him. What is her name in this movie? Melanie. The only person I remember is Bobby Ray. That's the the only person whose name I will know. Anyway, here's the thing. She is in this moment acting like a child. And look, I get it. Okay, one of my notes was, why is there a common law marriage but not common law divorce? They've been separated for so long. I don't know exactly how long she's been sending her not-so-ex-husband these divorce papers. I think it's seven years. I think it's seven years because that's the period of time she was gone. So even if it's not the full seven years, it sounds like the majority of the time she's been gone, she's been sending these papers, and he's been sending them back. She's now in a panic because she's engaged to a high-profile politician, Who, by the way, you said that he was a senator in your description, and I didn't understand that in the film. The only thing I understood was that he was the mayor's son, but then she said he worked in politics, and I was like, okay, but what the fuck does he do? It was very unclear to me that he was a senator. Anyway, she now has to get this divorce done because her engagement is a very public thing, and it's going to bring a lot of bad press on both her fiance and her mother-in-law if she is still married to this guy. I mean, even the fact that she's been married previously and it was a marriage because she was pregnant, that's not going to look good as it is. So the fact that she's still married to him, big problem, right? She's on the phone with her lawyer at one point and she says something about contesting the divorce, basically forcing this divorce to happen. He says it's going to take 18 months. Why the fuck did she not already do that? Yeah. And look, I understand that without her not being divorced, there there wouldn't be a film, which honestly, that seems like a good idea to me. Anyway, she's comes back to this town and I understand why she's upset. She needs to get this done. She's looking to like live the life that she's been building. And I can appreciate all of that. Being sympathetic can understand that she's worked really hard to build something And yet everyone in this town, the people that were her peers for so long, don't even seem interested. She talks to the one woman who, I can't think of her name right now, that actress, but she's also in Ever After. She plays one of the stepsisters, um, and she's currently in Yellow Jackets. The woman who has a baby in a bar. She has more at home. She's like, oh yeah, I was at whatever department store that designer was is great she's like actually no it's my design and she just seems like oh okay like she's not impressed and look maybe fashion's not your thing it's not my thing I get why people aren't going to necessarily take the most interest in it that you you want them to but every single person she talks to just seems so unenthused I understand her frustration, but at the same time, I do think that she's acting, I think you said like a know-it-all, and like she's better than all of them. 
I know we usually do fixes towards the end, but I don't really have any for this movie because my biggest complaint is that it was boring. But the one thing that I think (laughs) could have made this film better and maybe I would have liked it a little bit more. There is so much here to tap into some kind of clash of culture story. And I don't feel like they do with that at all. Like, I feel like this, this is a comedy. There's so much fuel, you know, so not only is this small town versus big city, it's also like progressive elites versus rural, more humble beginning conservatives, question mark. I don't know that I'm categorizing the best of my ability, but I feel like you understand what I'm saying. There's so many different ways in which these people, like, yeah, she's sort of this like bridge between these two worlds because she used to exist in one and she's immersed herself suddenly over the last several years in this other. But like, especially when Patrick Dempsey's character comes back into the picture to like, surprise her I feel like there should have been moments where like he was confused by something and it just it doesn't happen and I feel like that's a missed opportunity so if I was going to change one thing about this film to maybe save it for me but also I I just genuinely think it would add to the comedy it would be to to really capitalize on that clash of cultures that I feel like should be there and yet somehow it's missing. And I feel like the bar, the dive bar specifically, Stella's bar, had so much opportunity to display just little moments of that because like she walks in and she orders a Grey Goose martini dirty with olives. Like at that point they should have just stared at her like, bitch if we're fancy we might have Tito's. Or hey, we got Miller Lite and Bud Light and Corona Light, and Michelob Ultra, and Pabst. You like you like PBR? We'll get you PBR. Like, they could have done that. And then bring him there. Have him walk in and order, you know, like, some kind of fancy bourbon or whiskey or something and have them look at him like, brother, we don't have that. Just little things like that. They could have highlighted that, and they really just opted not to. And I... Wonder if it was to, because it's weird. It's like they kept trying to make Patrick Dempsey almost like a favorable character to force like a love triangle sort of angle with it. But I think it was pretty clear from the jump that he's the type of person who sees a marriage as like an excellent arrangement. You know, you have this hot upcoming fashion designer uh, wife you know, attached to you. That's clearly his motivation with everything. So I don't understand why it felt like they went out of their way to make him more likable because they didn't really go out of their way to make, I looked up his name, Jake, a more likable character other than just sort of highlighting the good parts of his good old boy complex it was weird it was a weird dichotomy between them because by the end of it I will say Patrick Dempsey was flatter than the rest of them so it was easier to root for the other guy but neither of them were really good and neither of them were really bad they just were and again that's my complaint biggest worry coming into recording this is that am I gonna have anything interesting to say about this movie because mostly my brain is just screaming (laughs) it was boring that just perfectly encapsulates 
all of my feelings. I'm I'm really doing my best here. But one thing that I kept thinking about, I don't know if you have read V.E. Schwab. She's a fantasy author. But I was lucky enough to go see her in person at a event back in February at the Westport Library in Connecticut. And one thing she said when, you know, people rate and review books, it's not the one star reviews that hurt. It's the three star reviews. Because one star or five star, this book made you feel something. It might have been negative. It might have been positive. The three star reviews are like, it was the most forgettable thing. And I honestly think that this is that kind of movie. It's just forgettable. Like, we're going to leave this conversation. And in a week, I will not be able to remember many of the plot points. (laughs) I'm just not going to. This will be a movie that I forget that I've seen. That's, That's fair. And I mean, I think that looking through it, I mean, it really does loop back to just a lack of depth of characters. But I feel like there were moments where they did encapsulate that so beautifully. And the primary moments are actually with the mother figures of the movie, not the mayor lady that was just like a a she dragon. She plays the exact same character that she plays in Miss Congeniality. Yes. Exactly. Yes, she does. And once again, it's time for an ad break. I'd like to remind everyone that this podcast is actually sponsored by Sandra Bullock herself. So please uh, support Sandra Bullock. Go to sandrabullock.gov, G-O-V, and put in promo code love at first screening and you will get 30% off nothing. (laughs) But... Like, there were a few really touching moments for me that I felt had real depth. And there were the moments with Stella, uh, Jake's mom slash the owner of the bar. You know, she was the classic character imparting wisdom upon anyone in her grasp. As what should happen with a bar owner. You will never meet someone wiser than a bar owner. I'm not just saying that just because I just watched uh, Coyote Ugly and have decided to force you to watch that in the future. We'll know when, but we'll get there. But also the moment with her mom, when Patrick Dempsey comes into the house, so she goes home after breaking up with Patrick Dempsey, her mom is making uh, the jam and she gives the little remark about how almost rotten fruit makes the best jam which I thought was really kind of a backhanded compliment because it's like you're so sweet because you're such a rotten bitch but when Patrick Dempsey comes in and she's like you know this is my home this is where I grew up and my mom makes the best jam three counties over I don't know what it was about that comment about her mom making the jam three counties over but it deepened the relationship between Reese Witherspoon and her mom in a way that I think is also just very quintessential southern mom southern daughter relationship where most of the time they're kind of jiving at each other the mom's nitpicking the daughters you know being quote-unquote rebellious but that's just like a little moment of appreciation for one another I don't know it just hit me like right in my feels You were clearly picking up things that I just didn't see. Like I saw setups for emotional moments and yet they didn't impact me, but I also couldn't quite put my finger on what exactly was happening. So let me ask you this. I'm quite confused about her parents' reluctance 
to visit her in New York. And I understand that perhaps surface level, it's they've never been anywhere else. And that would have been enough for me, except something that Reese Witherspoon says to her mom is that you always pushed me to like do the beauty pageant so that I could leave this place. And I did. And I feel like the subtext there is that perhaps her mother wasn't able to achieve that herself. And so she made the opportunities for her daughter to do that, which I can admire. And yet, why would you not want to see your child bask in her success? Look, I think a parent like that, even if whatever it is that their their child is doing is not as high profile as what Reese Witherspoon is doing, they still want to see what their kids are up to. I feel like the father was easier for me to parse out, but the mom, I just was so fucking confused. Am I missing something or is something missing from this film? So... I would say that the depth of this subtext, basically this movie represents and psychoanalyzes Southern family interactions and everything so well. Because I can tell you exactly why they never visited New York and I can tell her why her mom pushed her to get out of town. So let's start at the beginning. Okay, so the mom's putting her in all these beauty pageants. I grew up with a Southern mom who every time I told her, I want to be you when I grow up because she was like the coolest bad bitch ever. Her response and still to this day is aim higher. Honestly, I don't know why I'm inserting my relationship with my mother into this because her relationship with her mom is so much better representation of that odd duality so my grandmother raised my mom to be like crazy fiercely independent to the point that you know I'll do it myself is basically just like tattooed on her lower back conversely though my grandmother is like ah Danya you're so stubborn and if my mom moved to New York or something like that my grandmother would never visit her even though my grandmother is quite the traveling woman you know she'll just get in a car and go wherever it would really be partially, I think, because this weird expectation that they will go and do and come home and tell you all about it, but you don't want to overstep this weird invisible boundary that you've created and go and see it for yourself. New York for Southern people, for some reason, like older Southern people, is like the pinnacle of crime and everything wrong with America with the exclusion of California. But you have that element of this weird expectation to raise them to go off and do, but you won't ever follow them or even visit them. They have to make that trek. And then you have the other side of it which I think is almost oddly bred out of resentment. Like she's going and doing because you pushed her to and you told her to, but in a lot of ways, the mom has a weird resentment because they weren't able to do that themselves. And so to go and do that would be to remind them that they never got the opportunity or never gave themselves the opportunity to go and do that. And then Southern dads, I swear to God, every single one of them are hermits. You know, it's the John Mulaney uh, joke that dads don't have friends. They have the husbands of their wives' friends and maybe like the dads of their kids' friends. I swear to God, if you told my dad, you will never have to leave the house again. Not even to go to the Dollar General for cigarettes. Not even to go to the liquor store for rum. You could just stay home all the time. He would take it. And that's 
every southern dad I've ever met. If you just like shove them in a living room or a den with TV and six different college football games going on and snacks and beer, they will never leave. And so I think that's part of what I love about this movie so much is that it digs into that weird psychology of southern family dynamics. It's one of those things where you look at it and you're like, wow, that's fucked up. And then you're like, oh my god, it feels like home. I guess I understand it maybe a little bit better now. I'm curious to know if other people who, like myself, didn't grow up in the South felt the same way I did, where they didn't understand that dynamic as well as you did. You grew up in Georgia. I grew up all over the place. So I feel like I'm probably a mishmash of a lot of things. And I didn't encounter the South until I was in my late teens, I suppose, early 20s. And to be fair, wasn't that Florida? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I moved to Florida in high school. So that's a little bit of a different animal. So yeah, it really wasn't until my early 20s that I was in the South and had any sort of interaction with it. So I'm wondering if you got this because you're an insider. Was it correctly dictated to those who are not insiders is my question. Yeah, I think not. I think that looking at it from an outsider's lens, There's so much of what I would consider the classic Southern subtext in this that I could see why you would find it boring because you're not necessarily picking up on, not to narrow myself down too much, please no one stalk me or look me up, but a bulk of my family is from Toccoa, Georgia, which is North Georgia, right along the South Carolina border. And there were moments where she was like driving through town, which of course I did actually recognize for the area of Georgia it was filmed in. But there are moments where it really looks like a, you know, a small town like Toccoa, where everybody knows everybody. Honestly, my biggest complaint about the Southern dynamic in the film is that there weren't enough cousins and no one had double cousins like me. I promise I'm not uh, inbred, I'm not a sandwich, but yeah, there needed to be at least one set of double cousins, which is same cousins on both sides of the family for anyone confused, to really get the that Southern flair going on. Yeah, I would say from an outsider's lens, there's just so much subtext I can see why this would be boring for someone who's not reading it with that well and I mean I feel like that just further supports my my uh, original thesis which is that this is just not the movie for me I am not a lover of rom-coms and also I'm not someone who has a wealth of knowledge about southern relations and culture and atmosphere so this just Probably was just not the movie for me. There was also a stunning lack of food in this movie. If it was going to be truly Southern, the mother should have, like, as soon as she got in and said that she was too skinny, she should have just immediately started shoving food at her. I know she offered her chicken fried steak, but if she w- if it was truly a good Southern representation, she wouldn't have asked. She would have said, I'm going to reheat you some of this and then just done it regardless of the answer that Reese Witherspoon got about if she actually wanted it or not. I will tell you the one thing, the one piece of good that came out of this film. (laughs) What? So this film answered a question that has haunted me since 2004. It is a question posed by one Lorelai Lee Gilmore. Where did all the anvils go? Oh, yes. The answer is Bobby Ray's backyard. (laughs) Uh, well, technically, it was uh, 
Grandpa Carmichael's. But yes. I found them. Every single one. Someone get Amy Sherman Palladino on the phone. I found the anvils. You know, to be an anvil blasted into the air with an explosive, the freedom, you know, it's something to aspire to. It's something I long for. We have to come back to Bobby Ray, actually, now that I bring up his... Is that his grandfather? That was also confusing. Is Bobby Ray a Carmichael or is he related to them in some way? Are they just living in the Carmichael house? Does he work there? But I thought he worked at a factory. This is where, again, it's probably just because I wasn't paying that close attention because I didn't (laughs) give a shit. But like, let's go back to the bar scene. Mm -hmm. She outed him. This film confuses me in this respect. Because earlier there's a scene where he is sort of catcalling her on the road and then she realizes who it is and like, okay, it's a joke between old friends. They get out, they're hugging. She asks him about some woman that I guess he used to hang out with and he says that she either went to go teach softball or she ran off with a softball instructor and the implication is that this woman is a lesbian. Um, Strike one. Look, there are only certain people that can make this joke and it's actually funny. Um, In this context, it's honestly the joke just falls flat. We find out later that Bobby Ray is gay. So this moment can be explained by a couple of things. Internalized homophobia is a very real thing. But also he lives in a small town and has been probably for his own safety, hiding that part of himself. I should say not hiding, but not sharing that part of himself with other people. So now we have the bar scene where she's pissed. And this moment is weird because it seems to come out of nowhere. Like, I get that people are ganging up on her, sort of. But it seems as if, like, he was the ringleader to be like, well, why don't you just go to a gay bar? Which, first of all, is not even, like, the delivery of that insult is not as gut-punching as it could be, which I suppose maybe is a saving grace. Like, she definitely could have been meaner. But she also, I want to be clear, she outed him, which is absolutely horrible, especially in this public setting where by tomorrow morning, everyone will know he will have been outed to the entire town. So that's bad. I almost sounds like I'm complaining that they weren't homophobic enough, which, like, thank you for not being (laughs) as homophobic as you could have been. But her delivery of why don't you just go to the gay bar, it's not funny. And I'm not sure if it's meant to be. I feel like in 2002, you're supposed to laugh at this. But like it fails. Even I feel like for 2002, borderline homophobes. I don't feel like this joke works. And then people are confused. And I'm confused because I don't really know what this accomplished for her. Bobby Ray wasn't standing in her way. And I'm not saying that if he had been doing something directly to impact her, that her outing him would have been an appropriate response in any way. It still would have been absolutely unacceptable. But the apology is so like half-assed. And then he just has her back. And I have a real issue with this because it's the queer community having to help the straight people and lift up their stories. It's fell along that vein well comedy in general falls along but especially rom-coms where any point of genuine conflict is immediately reduced and immediately resolved you know we see that time and time again that's why rom-coms romance novels i want to point out specifically like really uh heteronormative romance stories 
tend to get away with people acting in really toxic ways, being genuinely bad people and doing bad things, and it has this immediate resolution. Usually what happens in rom-coms though, especially popular rom-coms like this that have a genuine budget to them, they don't go hard-hitting like this. You know, this is not a topic that they would normally approach with the degree of severity that this one initially did because, I mean, like you said, the one, the way that Reese Witherspoon played the character, the way the character was written, the bar scene really felt like it was coming out of nowhere. And you could say maybe she's drunk and sort of reliving her felony Melanie days, but that was doing hooligan shit. That was pushing tractors into lakes and tipping cows, which is so bad for cows. Please don't tip cows. They could break ribs and then they get shot. I would be remiss if I didn't mention, because cows were brought up, cows have best friends. And that's my favorite fact about cows. And don't care if you've already heard me say this. I'll tell you it anytime you bring up cows. Cows have best friends. I am tearing up at that fact. I love it. And it has nothing to do with the wine that I have consumed while we've been recording this. It's simply because the idea of animals having friends makes me automatically tear up and cry. If my voice breaks, I'm crying over cows having best friends. Anyway, you can't approach something that has genuine consequence like that and immediately resolve it. So I think that's why the resolution feels so disingenuine. Because this isn't hooligan shit. This has real, typical, real social repercussions for someone. You know, it has historically led to isolation, loss of friendship, being disowned by families, losing jobs, being killed. This is a topic that historically has, and still today, has significant weight to doing something like that. It's incredibly problematic. And the fact that they resolved it by the redneck love interest being like, you're still the same Bobby Ray that, you know, that you were yesterday. It doesn't matter who you love. It's a beautiful sentiment. I will give you that. But it doesn't feel genuine of the real past. And of course, we've discussed before, you know, sort of suspension of disbelief but that I don't feel like that is appropriate to apply here because it's fine to suspend disbelief in like Greece with a car flying at the end or some shit like that or having 30 year olds play teenagers that's one thing but this has genuine real world consequence that feels really undercut by the sudden resolution so it does feel uncomfortable it doesn't feel like there's any weight to the moment so i completely understand where you're coming from and i had forgotten this is one of my mom's favorites um and i think it's really just because it has a happy ending with the mom and that's all she wants with her mother again my grandmother will never listen to this because otherwise she'd be like i can't believe you're uh throwing all of our family gossip on the interwebs But I think she likes that part of it. But it's a sticking part of the movie that I didn't remember. And now moving forward after talking about it at length, I'll probably never forget again. Yeah, it's icky. That's not nice. Yeah, it has a a similar ick to to all of the 
referenced the Confederacy. You know, it's funny. I was thinking that this movie couldn't be made in 2022 because they're so flippant about a lot of, how does the the dad phrase it? Uh, History. You can't sweep it under the rug. And yet right now in our political climate, we're having a lot of very heated discussions about what should be taught in schools. And so I think that this is a perfect example of an attitude that people had for a really long time, which is that it doesn't matter. It happened in the past. Not acknowledging the history of the people that fought to, after the Civil War ended, erect all of those Confederate statues in the South, marketing it as Southern pride, and not acknowledging the real harm that was done not only to this country, but the people that occupied it and the harm that is still being done all these years later. So it's interesting to think about because if this movie came out now, there would be uproar about the flippancy with which those particular attitudes, I guess, are uh, displayed. Yeah. I'll admit that when she's looking for her dad at the end of the movie, it feels almost as if you're breaking a fourth wall and that's not what's happening, but she's in modern clothes looking for her dad and it seems as if a war is going on behind her. Like, I can appreciate that for what it is, but like some of the other things that were very clearly made to be jokes, they're poking fun at the South, but it feels very good-natured, whereas Whereas if you did that now with the specific things they're talking about, it would leave a bad taste in a lot of people's mouth for just reasons. Oh, yeah. No, it very much leans into, you know, a heritage, not hate sentiment that was really perpetuated. I mean, fuck, that's that's, you know, what my dad was raised on. He's grown to understand that the two can't really necessarily be separated in terms of iconography and that sort of thing. I think that the main difference is the difference between remembrance and reverence. And that's really what we're coming to understand now. So I completely agree. Those elements of that movie would not be created now. And they shouldn't be. I will say, though, that one of the best points of comedy in this movie is the scene where she's walking through all of these quote-unquote dead Confederate soldiers in, like, this cute little outfit and trying to find her dad. And the dead guy, you know, dead in quotations, uh, pops up and is like, who are you looking for, sweetie? And she's like, Earl Smooter. And all of these dead Confederate soldiers <laughs> rise up and they're like, he's about to surrender. And then she goes, thank you. And they're like, yeah, I get it. And they just all fall back into their, you know. I actually think that, that that scene was probably the most comical throughout this whole film. I think it did what it was doing and it did it well. But I also think the context in which that's joke is is very different to what we're talking about. I completely agree. Ultimately, it is that weird New South, Southern Pride, South Will Rise Again sort of bullshit malarkey that runs through the Southern veins. But I will tell you that the South now just recognizes itself for superior cooking and just that and we use 14 sticks of butter in everything we cook that's our claim to fame now that hot weather i did like his joke about how the mosquito is the state bird of alabama golden primo 
I will say the only part in which I laughed in this movie, and it's not meant to be a joke, but the very beginning of the film when Patrick Dempsey is proposing to her in Tiffany and all of these employees are just standing there awkwardly, I busted out laughing. (laughs) It was the only time I laughed in this movie because I was like, this is the most awkward proposal. If anyone knows me, I hate public proposals. Don't do them. But it's not quite a public proposal. It's like a private proposal with staff. (laughs) And that is really weird and awkward. Look, the one thing I'll give Patrick Dempsey is that if you can rent out a jewelry store, like if that's the kind of money and connections you have, that's the only way to get engaged. Let people pick out their own jewelry. Yes, I agree with that. What what a time. For all of the ridiculous things rich people have done in all of these films, this is the one that I approve of. Yeah, no, as someone who used to sell jewelry at a place that rhymes with males, <laughs> yeah, I laughed at the same exact part because I just loved the idea of, like, they flip on the lights, right? And then all these people are sitting there. So I just feel like, you know, there's like 15 minutes of lead up to this where all of these staff members are like, fuck, it's late. I don't want to be here. And they're like, you know, practicing their perfect pristine smile and everything. And they have their little books, which by the way, when they were pulling out whole pads of engagement rings, I know that it was just Reese Witherspoon and Patrick Dempsey in that store. But I'm like, oh my God, that's a security risk. Why are we doing that? That's still so ingrained in me. But they had to be standing in the dark, just waiting at least five minutes, okay? At least five minutes. These people are waiting in the dark. And that was the funniest shit to me ever. That was hilarious. I guess it comes time for us to ask the most important question. Is this a rom-com? This one's weird because they already start out married. We kind of talked about this. I think that our criteria works, but I think we've been too narrow in our interpretation of it. So for me, do they date? I think what we're getting at is, are there romantic moments between them in which you understand the progression of this pairing's love story. I think for the most part that will appear as dates, flirting, courtship in the traditional sense. But in films like this, I think, you know, and when we we talked about Pretty Woman, we really had to talk about what was a date in that sense. So I think here the question is, are there moments, even if we can't consider them a, a proper date, in which we see their romantic story moving forward? Right. Do we see them sort of softening to one another? Yeah. And that those moments contribute to the larger plot. They don't go out on a date. But are there other moments in which we see them growing closer together in a romantic way? I would say that them in the pet cemetery, I'm counting that as a date by this criteria. (laughs) It's the hottest date spot in town. Meet me in the pet cemetery is what Stephen King said. Oh, that's so sexy. And then clearly we laughed. We loved the Tiffany scene. And that was 100% meant as a joke. No, there are clearly setups for jokes here. There's attempts at physical comedy that I didn't personally laugh at. You know, the scene with the shade on the door where he keeps trying to close it and it's not working. Didn't work for me, but I I see the attempt there. We talked about the battle scene and the... Silliness. 
Yeah, the dissonance between her acting normal in what appears to be the midst of battle. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. Does love conquer the plot? I would say it has to. They had Rock'em Sock'em Robots on a wedding cake. There is nothing more romantic than that than having cake in a dive bar with Rock'em Sock'em Robots. Yeah, the um, romance is integral to this plot. It is. If you get rid of it, I mean, this movie's already boring. I don't know what this movie would be about (laughs) without the romance. Yeah, no, unlike music and lyrics, if you remove the romance from the plot, you don't have a plot. You have a small town girl falling back in love with her small town, but she really only does that because she falls back in love with the guy. He represents the town for her. That's the reason she didn't go back is because it's that sentiment of actually (laughs) Sabrina Carpenter. I'm just going to make music references from now on. Uh, in all of these episodes, but Sabrina Carpenter has a song on her newest album where the opening lines are, you used a fork once, turns out forks are fucking everywhere, which is a dipshitty line, but it gets to the heart of when you love somebody so much that even the most mundane shit reminds you of them. So if you grow up in a small town and, you know, they've been close since before they were 10 because she was 10 when they kissed on the beach at the very beginning and he proposed to her then, you know, like kids do. He is the town to her. There's probably not an inch of that town that they haven't touched together. So to do that apart doesn't seem feasible. So you couldn't even have small town girl falls back in love with her small town without the romance because I hate to break this to you, the town is a metaphor. So yes, love conquers the plot because it's the only plot. I mean, look, I was prepared to say this was a romantic comedy Surely based on the fact that I just didn't like the movie and thought it was boring and thought it was basically a overglorified Hallmark film. But uh, it does fit the criteria we've set forth. So It does. And I think that it hits all the tropes. It hits all the tropes that you want in a rom-com because it is that Hallmark itch of nothing of consequence. They're going to end up together and you know it. That's why Patrick Dempsey has... Well, I mean... Not saying that really anyone has much character depth in this movie other than potentially our beloved Bobby Ray. Patrick Dempsey could be subbed out for literally anybody. And maybe that's a commentary on the fact that every role that I've seen with Patrick Dempsey, he could be subbed out with anybody. But in this movie especially, you know from the very start how it's going to end. They set you up for it in the very beginning. You know, nothing compels people awkwardly like a young Dakota Fanning and a little boy kissing on a beach and almost getting exploded with lightning. That's what I love. Real quick, the one thing that actually made me so angry. So this lightning glass, so this is a real phenomenon. It's called fulgurite or fossilized lightning. These things do happen when lightning strikes sand and it cools down. But what they show you It's not what that is. It doesn't turn into this pristine glass statue because holy shit. I mean, look, nature does a lot of really great, cool, weird, awesome things, but turning it into a like perfectly glass blown statue, that's not what happens. Some of them do look really cool, but they look more like stone. And honestly, I feel like I was lied to. (laughs) 
it's like they learned about Fulgurite and then they were like, but if we make it out of blown glass, then he can have a glass company and that will be the thing that brings them back together because you just can't get glasses like this in New York. <laughs> and he has a thriving business, so he's clearly good enough for her now. That really irked me. Honestly, it just made me really sad because I thought, holy shit, this is awesome. And look, I did go and learn about Fulgurite for a bit. So maybe that's a plus for this film. But mostly I was just mad at it for lying to me about what it looked like. So I just need all of you to know that that's not what it looks like. <laughs> Did you fall down a similar rabbit hole to that time that you fell down a rabbit hole about milk? <laughs> yes, only because what will this podcast be known for but all of our world-class tangents and today's <laughs> will be about milk. We've already talked about cows and best friends, so let's talk about milk. I fell down a rabbit hole about milk because I bought this milk at the grocery store and I noticed that it was organic and for some reason... It had a way longer expiration date than the like store brand milk I had been purchasing previously. And so then I was like, wait, pasteurized, this is ultra pasteurized. And I fell down this huge Google rabbit hole in which I was learning about the differences. And then I was like, well, I know that things that are not pasteurized are apparently not legal in the US. So anywho, yes, I fell down a whole rabbit hole about milk, milk alternatives, cheeses, you know what? I recommend it. You should, <laughs> if you have some time on your hands, you should Google dairy. I'm an oat milk person because otherwise my intestines will strangle me. <laughs> Shout out to all of the lactose intolerant folks. I know. I know. And it's so disappointing because the easiest on the corner coffee place to get oat milk is Starbucks. I don't want to patronize them because they won't let their stores unionize. But I also just have an occasional need or else I'm going to die for a cinnamon oat milk latte. It's a struggle. Well, speaking of coffee shops, maybe we should rate the watchability of this here film. One to five scale with homage to Zillow's walkability score. Number one, stranded in the desert. Two, backroads barbecue. Three, strip mall in suburbia. Four, four blocks from a transit stop. And number five, the best coffee in the whole city is right downstairs. And I think the most appropriate thing for me to rate this is Backroads Barbecue. Could I rate it anything else? <laughs> this movie was not entertaining for me, but it also didn't fill me with rage. So there's that. But also, I think Backroads Barbecue, you'll find that in Alabama near Pigeon Creek. Is that the town? Yeah, that's the made up town. Mm -hmm. feels on brand i'm gonna disagree this time around because i have the whole episode and we've really gotten to the crux of why we started this podcast first thought because this feels like a warm quilt that your great aunt margaret made i was gonna go with four blocks from a transit stop however i felt like i really couldn't reconcile my modern day discomfort with all the confederacy regalia and everything and the scene of outing poor bobby ray the best character in this film other than the cat that got blown up which is why we can remember his name yes exactly i have to rate it a strip mall in suburbia and i specifically actually want this to be an outlet mall that's what i'm rating this this is an outlet mall where you're gonna have a gaggle of karens just plowing through a bath and body works 
But you're also going to have a really nice guy named Levi who works at a jeans store, but it isn't a Levi's. Just giving you the best food recommendations in town. And it's actually his mama's house. And he'll bring you leftovers later. It's an outlet mall in the far reaches of suburbia. But only because I couldn't reconcile those elements with my conscience. Otherwise, it'd be about six blocks from a transit stop. I do have to say that we do actually have one more sponsor. And that sponsor is Sweet Tea. That is so sweet and so thick. You're actually drinking simple syrup that had a tea bag waved over the pot so like the LaCroix of sweet tea it's just like an essence of tea in sugar it's like if you freebased sweet tea that's a drug reference for you kids don't do drugs just really distilling it down just really hitting it that's what we're sponsored by all right well thank you all for listening. Madison, do you want to tell people where they can find us on the internet? Oh, on the internet. Thank God. I really was trying to not invite stalkers this episode after, you know, the hit success of our first, what at this point, four episodes. I keep having people in my DMs telling me they want to marry me, asking me for feet pics. And I don't give those away for free, guys. It's $25 a toe. As it should be. But if you want to find us on the internet, um, you can do that, and that's fine. First, you can find us on Twitter at the Laughs Pod. So that's at T H E L A F S P O D. You can also find us on the Instagram at Love at First Screening. And if you want to hit us up and tell us all of your thoughts about anything that you want, you can catch us at love at first screening at gmail.com and that's a really smart thing to do because we've had a listener write in and request the movie that we will be watching next time and it's going to be a film that neither of us have seen it's true it's a real shake-up shout out to amanda who emailed us and requested that we watch the new hulu film rosaline yes i do believe that is what it's called so Shout out to listener Amanda from Kentucky. <laughs> Once again, we are Love at First Screening. We are here every Wednesday talking about rom-coms, loving them, loving to hate them, and everything in between, even when you're bored out of your mind. And loving you guys. So until next time. <laughs>